just by way of review here in the text, we're still parked around Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life and ministry, and he's still in the temple teaching everyone who's coming to him. The religious leaders of Israel are still as angry as ever, and we've watched how they're seeking to take Jesus out through this attack of divisive questioning. So they have these various questions that they're coming to Jesus with, and they're hoping to discredit his ministry or to get him to say something blasphemous or against the state so they can turn him over to Rome. And this today is the last question that comes to Jesus. And after that, they give up uh, this type of attack. And so I want to remind you of the three questions that have already come. And the first one is in Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12 and verse 12. This is where members of the Sanhedrin come to Jesus and they ask the question, by what authority are you doing these things? And these things are you're turning over all the tables, you're, you're um, commanding all the merchants to go out of the court of the Gentiles, and they're saying, by what authority are you doing all these things? And Jesus, of course, responded to them, mesmerized everybody like he always does. He's brilliant. The second question was in Mark 12, verse 13 through 17. This is where the Pharisees and the Herodians conspire together, and they ask him, should we pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? And so they're bringing up a political question, and no matter how he answers it, we know that it's going to put him in a bit of a conundrum, and that's exactly what they wanted. But Jesus, of course, is brilliant, and he says what nobody thought he would say, and it left them sort of shocked In Mark chapter 12 and verse 18 through 27, that was a few weeks ago, this is where the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection and they hold all the offices of the priesthood, so they're very upset with Jesus because he's messed with their money and also their teaching, the status quo, and they ask him, how can there really be a resurrection? That's absurd, and so they bring up a passage in Deuteronomy about levirate marriage, and I know that really ministered to you because uh, we were really wondering about, you know, what's going to happen in heaven. Um, you don't hear very many messages about what your marriage is going to be like in heaven. So I might have messed with you, and, uh, you know, I hope the Scriptures do mess with you once in a while. Amen? Because they're the Scriptures, and so uh, that's just how it is. But today, we're looking at a scribe who comes to Jesus and asks him the question, which seems simple, but it's actually not. What is the greatest commandment? And so here's what it says, starting in verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well. He asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all or the greatest? And Jesus said, the foremost is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated. I mean, could anybody ever imagine validating Jesus? Just kind of a, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the, uh, with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one, and I mean no one, would venture to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. 
David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him because they didn't have an answer. (laughs) In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for appearance' sake, they offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, I know that we all share some common struggles as people. We all have different preferences, but we definitely share a lot of struggles. And I don't think I'm venturing too far out there by saying one of the common struggles that we share is the tension that we have whenever we sign one of those EULA agreements. You know what I'm talking about? They're the end user license agreements. And these are those things like whenever you get a new computer or a new app or a new software or something like that, you'll notice that you have to press I agree at the end of this extremely long list of demands and commands and agreements. And you have to click this button that says I agree. Now, here's my question. Does anybody ever read any of that stuff? (laughs) You weren't supposed to raise your hand, Aunt Jeanette. (laughs) They send you right to sleep. If you ever want to pass out, just read that. And I agree to a lot. (laughs) I think we all have that tension because it's this just long, long document that you're supposed to press. There's a lot of pressure. You have to agree to a lot of stuff before you use this software and you... Um, go down this road of, of and you kind of like press it. Um, it's kind of like the way some, pe- some of you stop at a stop sign <laughs> and you just keep going. It's like it wasn't even there, you know. And I think it's a lot of pressure and it's kind of frustrating really when you think about it because you don't know what you're agreeing to. I mean, am I agreeing to give my firstborn? You know, would you press I agree twice? I don't know what you would do. Am I agreeing to pay money? What, what am I agreeing to? And so it's kind of all the, always this nerve-wracking thing, at least for me, I, I thought about it uh, yesterday. And because it's a little scary, I thought, you know what, I might, the recent one at least, I want to read what I'm actually agreeing to. And so with that in mind, I want to read to you what I pressed I agree to. Um, and I'm summarizing these statements because I don't speak lawyer ease, and so I want to bring this to you in the way that I think is fair in, in summary. Uh, Number one, this is actual, you will not criticize this product. It's publicly, this is what it's saying, all right? Number two, using this product means that you will be monitored. Uh, Thank you, Illuminati. Uh, Number three, this is why we all go crazy, you know, really. It's because it's like you agree to this stuff. Number three, (laughs) we are not responsible for any damage to your computer or device while using our software. Oh, and my personal favorite. (laughs) All of this that you've agreed to is subject to change at any time without your consent. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) You don't know what you're, you're you're agreeing to. And I think sometimes these statements are almost worded in such a way, or at least it feels this way, to that you would agree with them and not, be a, not even understand what they mean. You're confused. I'm confused about them. But here's what I was thinking about. I think sometimes when we become Christians, that's what it can be like for us. We agree to following Jesus. We agree to everything that is in this book And you know nothing. Do you remember when you became a Christian? When I became a Christian, I said yes. And the reason that I did was because Jesus Christ came, 
He died for my sins. He rose again on the third day. And I knew that if I put my faith and trust in him, I would be forgiven and I would be in right relationship with God the Father. And so I said yes and amen to the forgiveness of sins. I said yes and amen to heaven. And then I started reading this book and I went like, wow, there's a lot of stuff in here. Friends, there are a lot of commands that you said yes to and you didn't know what you signed up for. Now, I'm not encouraging you to back out. I'm actually encouraging you to press in all the more. I'm saying put your foot on the gas and keep going. It gets better. But you can get confused real quick. I don't know about you, but I, I sure did. I remember the first time that I sinned right after that I had said yes to Jesus because I felt like I had this reprieve where like I wasn't doing all of the things that I used to do. And so the guilt of my sin had been washed away. But I remember the first time I really sinned, like not one of those sins in your heart, but I actually, with my own words, with my own actions, I did something that I shouldn't do. And I felt this overwhelming guilt. And I was like, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to do this. And so I'm scouring this book, looking for a way out. (laughs) This is normal, right? This is normal. This happens to people. (laughs) Because I had come from darkness to light. And so I think sometimes... We agree to following Jesus, but we don't really know what that means. We just don't. And I think as a result of that, you know, you can get tripped up, and I think people do. Here's the deal. We have questions. When I read this book, if you don't have questions, I'm going to be, I say this respectfully, but it's probably because you're not reading a lot of this. Because I read this a lot, and I have a lot more questions than I used to. And you, sometimes people don't want their pastor to say that. I don't question God at all. I love God with all my, I mean, I don't question, but I've got questions like, what in the world does that mean? And the minute you hear somebody like, well, the Greek word means you're like, there's Greek? (laughs) Mine's in English. Can I get that version? You know, and the Hebrew means you're like, there's Hebrew too. You know, it's like that. And so I want to encourage you today that at times, even when you feel confused or conflicted or you have questions, that's great. You should have questions, but we want to put our foot on the gas and press more into God. And there are passages like the one that we're reading about today that actually help to summarize the intent of all that we read about concerning commandments and all that God gives to us and requires from us. There's an intent and a purpose behind all of that. And so you and I pressed, I agree, and rightly so. Maybe not on the EULA agreements, but certainly on following Jesus. And so when we look at this passage today, I want to frame it up by looking first at the question and then his answer and a little bit about what it means to love God. So the question is this, the scribe asks, What is the most important commandment? In verse 28, it says that this is a scribe who is asking Jesus, and he asks him because he watches the interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees about resurrection. And it says that as he watched that, he was impressed by Jesus's answer. And so he steps forward and he asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Now, in the days of Jesus, a scribe, Matthew calls him a lawyer. A lawyer and a scribe were the same thing. A lawyer in those days is not what a lawyer is today. He was a Pharisee with an expertise in the law. A modern way of putting it is scribes were scholars. So he's the smartest person in the room at that time. And it appears that the scribe was sincere in his line of questioning, but he's still part of the group that are bringing these divisive questions to Jesus to take him out. So I wouldn't call him that sincere. But there is an underlying historical debate about commandments that make this question all the more important. 
The scribe says, what is the foremost or greatest commandment of, of all? What's first? The question isn't as simple as it might seem. We're looking back and we get to see this interaction, but they had this regular debate that scribes and Pharisees would talk about quite regularly. And the reason that they did is because the scribes had come up with 613 laws that you could find in the Old Testament. Everybody say 613. That's a lot of laws. It's a lot of commandments. And they believed that 248 of them were positive, 365 were negative, or you could call them prohibitions, don't do this. And these commands were subdivided into two groups, heavy and light. And so the debate in Jesus' day revolved around what commands were heavy or more binding and what commands were more light or less binding. They constantly talked about this. Now, again, it's not a debate necessarily that we have today, but it certainly was something that they had in their day. We understand this because we all, in our world, Christianity, Christendom, this big umbrella called Christianity, a lot of different denominations, a lot of different doctrinal positions. We obviously know that, that different camps debate the emphasis of, uh, of various doctrines and teachings. So maybe our question wouldn't be the same as theirs today if Jesus was here and we were having our question time with him, Q&A time with Jesus. Maybe we would ask, hey, who wrote Hebrews? For those of you that didn't hear what Pastor Steve taught. Anyways, um, maybe we would ask about pre-mid and post-trib. <laughs> it's pre-mid, it's pre-trib, isn't it, right? We're going to get out of this thing before it's all said and done. We're going to get to what I think about that in a couple weeks, so I'll slow down. Hey, uh, what kind of snake was that in the garden? You know, I mean, I just, was it a black mamba? Was it a python? I don't know, that might be a younger person thing. And for some of you that have a Catholic background, was Peter really a pope? I mean, I'm struggling with that. That just has have a hard time thinking he was the first, if, if any. So I don't know. <laughs> I, do. I have more. I'm just going to move on. I, 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 um, but we have different debates about emphasis, and, and we debate those today. And so they had this one. What is the greatest commandment? That was a real question that, that they had. But here's Jesus' answer. Loving God is first, loving others is second. Loving God is our first priority. In verse 29, Jesus answered the man's question by quoting a well-known passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 through 5. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This commandment is also known as the Shema, and it was deeply important to the religious Jew. They learned the Shema at a very young age, and devout Jews would say it in the morning and in the evening every single day. The Shema was also written on strips of paper and was put into small leather-like boxes, and it was wrapped around their arm, and sometimes it was wrapped around their forehead. If you've ever gone to Israel and you go to the Wailing Wall, you'll see that they'll have little, some uh, devout Orthodox Jews will have little boxes. They're made out of leather, essentially, and the strips of paper that are inside those boxes are the ones that are on their head. They actually have the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5. That's what it's containing. And the reason that they do that is to fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 8 and 9. It says, tie them, the commands, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. 
And so sometimes they would put them in a small box and they would uh, nail them to their doorposts. And the idea was in my going out and in my coming in, I'm proclaiming the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. The Shema to the Jew was all about God's uniqueness and exclusivity. He is God and he deserves all of our worship. Now, sometimes preachers in the Christian faith will break down this passage and they'll say, we need to love God with all of our mind. We need to love God with all of our soul. We need to love God with all of our heart. And we need to love God with all of our strength. And so they break down these aspects of what it means to love God with these various things. Now, again, (laughs) when you study this and you find out very clearly, that is not what was meant. What was meant here in the Shema, what is meant here in Mark chapter 12, is simply this. We're just to love God with everything that we are. It wasn't meant to become this four-part teaching. That's not the way that Jesus was reiterating this. That's not what they understood as Orthodox Jews, devout Jews. They didn't believe sometimes the way that we break these things uh, down. I've seen in a lot of apologetic circles, the way that you love God with your mind is you commit yourself to apologetics. It's like, well, you love God with everything. That's really the, the point. And so remember, don't get caught up with some of these lesser teachings. Just understand the main principle. We are to give God everything that we are. Exclusivity. It's very similar to when you get married and you make a covenant. And as a result of that covenant or to seal the covenant that you make, you make a vow. And you make that vow vow before God, before Pastor Ben or whoever your pastor was at the time. It might have been a while ago. And also before all your friends and family, you make this vow. You say, I pledge my loyalty to you for the rest of my life. This is an exclusive relationship. Nobody else can enter into this covenant. Well, this is what it was like. We're saying, I give my love, my affection, my devotion to you first, and nobody else has this place in my life except for you, oh God. Loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength is about our full and complete devotion to God and no other. No other can have this place, not your spouse, not your kids, not anybody. And they understood this and so should we. It is the first. And the second, loving others is our second priority. It's funny to me, Jesus is not asked what the second is, but he goes ahead and tells him anyways. Don't you love that? I feel like it's Jesus saying, what you meant to ask me was (laughs) redirection uh, before correction. That's a a, a parent teaching there. Uh, I got more if you're interested. (laughs) He doesn't stop. He goes on to the second commandment and he quotes Leviticus 19, 18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm sure you haven't brushed up on Leviticus 19 for a long time. And the whole chapter is devoted to practical ways that you can love your neighbor, especially as they're going to move from the wilderness into the promised land. Don't you love how the law gives very practical examples of what it actually means to love your neighbor? So loving your neighbor was this summation of all of these commandments in Leviticus chapter 19. So for example, He talks to them about all kinds of things regarding what you don't do for your neighbor and what you must do. And one of them, a lot of it revolves around justice, is that the way that you treat others in your business dealings as a neighbor is that you're fair. That's really what it's um, all about. But did you notice this is a comparative statement? It says, love your neighbor 
as yourself. Now, it doesn't say that in the first commandment, does it? It doesn't say love God as you love yourself. It says love your neighbor as yourself. This is very practical. We know how to love ourselves, very very action-oriented here. We feed ourselves. We comfort ourselves. We protect ourselves. We treat ourselves when we're sick. We understand Jesus said, do to others as you would have them do to you. This is this frame of mind of what actually love means. Love is not some nice, pithy statement. I know at times, I really feel that in the Christian church, particularly in our day, to, our day now, we've reduced love down to kindness. And I want to put that idea on the shelf for a minute. You can be very, very kind, but not have a lot of love in your life toward other people because love is a verb. Love is action-oriented. Go ahead and read Leviticus 19, and you will not see in there at any point, just be really, really nice to people whenever you interact with them in our world, if you interact with them. (laughs) Just be really nice. Say kind things. Tell them that their hair is nice. Tell them that they they, better been, you dressed up today. Is that because of Christmas? Yeah, absolutely it is. (laughs) The candles look nice. I mean, it's not about kindness. Now, should you be kind? Please, (laughs) please spread the holiday cheer. Be kind to one another. Of course. But if you define loving others by your kindness, friend, you've got a lot of steps you got to take. Can we say amen today? It's easy just to be nice. Hey, it's just so good to see you. Awesome, great. I'm, I really love people. No, you don't. <laughs> That's not love. That's not the definition of love. It doesn't mean it's not part of it. It just means that today it seems like we've reduced a lot of that down to uh, being kind. Kindness is important. It's something that we ought to be. But when he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, he's talking about feeding, protecting caring for, being mindful of, praying for. This is, this is what he's really meaning. So the real thing, though, is we are to love God with everything that we are. We love neighbor as self, okay? This is, this is that kind of love. But we love God, and that's exclusive. Nobody we are to love the same way that we love God. We love God with everything that we are. And friends, this is why when Jesus teaches about the gospel, First thing he says is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You cannot have a relationship with God unless you turn your entire self over to God. You can't experience what Jesus paid for. You can't have what Jesus is giving and we cannot know what Jesus has invited us into unless we do what is being said here. We give all of ourselves to him. We don't add anything to his finished work, but we give everything to him to experience what he did for us. Love the Lord, your God, with everything that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the response of the scribe because his answer was brilliant. The scribe says, you are right. This is more important than anything. Burnt offerings and sacrifices. The smartest person in the room just validated that Jesus' one-paragraph summary was what the law was all about. Picture this. They debate all the time about what commandment is greater, and Jesus steps up to the plate and hits a grand slam, and the only thing this guy can say is, you are right. A few verses later, it says, nobody ventured to ask him another question. You're darn right. You're darn right they didn't. That was it. Mic drop, game over. 
Jesus is like, is there anyone else? No, there's not. There's not. Jesus is amazing. I want to focus just for the rest of our time together about how we grow in loving God. The longer you're a Christian, the more you ask the question, what does it really mean to love God? If you've ever meditated on that, um, that's right to do. What does it mean to love the Lord? Because there's something inside you that wants to do that. I want to tell you, in our beginnings with Jesus, we want to hear that he loves us. But in our maturity in Jesus, we want to know what it means to love him. That's really what we're talking about today, loving God. How do you do that? The first way that we do that is we have to receive God's love for us. Every human being is born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says this, that we are dead in our sins and our transgressions. We are born into this world with a sinful condition, meaning we are spiritually dead, and we cannot live the way that God designed and created for us. And so every time we read a command, it doesn't register. That's why religion was born. Religion was born because we just couldn't do that from our heart. You live one day as a human being and you realize that you can't fulfill the commandments and so they had to find some kind of scaffolding where they could in their own eyes please a holy and a righteous God. Now we, of course, don't believe that it works, but this is why religion was born is to somehow feel like we're pleasing God and we make our own rules and we set our own boundaries and we build our own house and it always collapses. But the law revealed that all people could not live as God commanded. They couldn't live in loving God. Until we receive the love of God in Christ and are born again, uh, we just simply can't do what Jesus is saying. We cannot live out the Shema. You can say it, love the Lord your God with everything, but you cannot live it. And this is what it says in 1 John 4.10, because you can't just wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to really work at it today you're going to fail. I'm just going to give you a promise here. There it is. But look what John says. 1 John 4.10, this is the Message Bible. I don't usually use this version. This is the kind of love that we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. It isn't that we love God, it's that he first loved us. And our love to God is only a response to his incredible love for us. And friend, I want to tell you, the same is true as a Christian. If you find yourself in a place where you're not sure if your life really exhibits this love for God, if that's what comes out of you towards him, if you find yourself in that place today, I would tell you, That in the same way that you met Jesus, where you saw his love for you and you were invited into relationship with him and you gave yourself to him, that's what we have to do. We come to God, we surrender all of ourselves to Jesus because he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. I think as we follow Jesus, the same is true. We have to get a greater revelation of who he is. How do I learn to worship him more? How do I learn to obey him more? How do I walk with him more closely? It's where you see his love for you more clearly. When we see how much he loves us, we're drawn towards him. It's compelling. Isn't it compelling to you? And I would tell you when our love for God grows dim, it's because we're not seeing something in him that we need him to open our eyes to. We're dependent on God, friends. It's not about gritting it and obeying. Oh, I'm just going to get up. I'm really an obedient Christian. No, 
We yield. We surrender. We ask him, help me, open my eyes, show me who you are. Now look at this. This is the epitome of religion and trying in our own strength. The scribe says to him, yeah, you're right. And Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, and he makes this statement, verse 34. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Here's the deal. You can be one inch away and still not in the kingdom of God. Jesus' statement might sound kind of encouraging, but in reality, if that scribe were not to have another day, this is what it means to me when I read something like that. It means it is possible to have a Christian upbringing and still be lost. It means that it's possible to know the truth and still not know the love of God. That you know what's right and true, but you still not have the love of God in your life. It's possible that you can hear and know the gospel, but still trust in your own goodness for right standing with God. It means that you can be within an inch of heaven, but never be with God forever. Jesus is the only one that bridges the gap from where we are to where he is. And this is true in salvation, but I would also submit to you that it's also true in our walking with God. And I know this to be true for myself. Whenever I find myself questioning my love for God or wondering like, how is that, what does that look like to him and not just to me? I say, Lord, would you open my eyes? Show me how great you are. Show me your love for me. It's one of the blessings that happen in my life when I come to gather with you. And it's one of my greatest appreciations about the gathering together of the Lord, the congregation of God. It's when I come up here. I mean, I, I never try to look back. I don't know if you're singing or you're <laughs> worshiping or raising your hands. I, don't, I mean, I hope you are. I don't know if you are. And I would encourage it. It's not a judgment, it's just a reality. But I just close my eyes and I love to just worship. I love to sing, I love to clap, I love to shout. And when I do, when I gather with you, the presence of God, the tangible presence of God manifests. And as I yield to him, all I have to do is yield to him. And when I do that, I feel like my love for God just increases. And, and something happens, you know what? I want to worship God. Maybe you walked into this room today and you didn't want to be here. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Maybe you didn't want to be here, let alone want to sing or want to raise your hands or want to do anything. And maybe if you're honest, you're like, I don't even want you to keep talking, Pastor Ben. <laughs> I want to get a donut. I want to have some coffee. I want my spouse to be nice. <laughs> I want people around me to leave me alone. <laughs> this is what I want. Me. Do you want God? Do you want to love God? If you do want to love God, you need to see him bigger and better than you currently do. That's me and that's you. And when we do, we surrender to him. We say, Lord, show me. We read this book because this book brings us in proximity to who he is. Why do you need the word of God? Just to check a box. I read it. It's not about just reading it. It's about seeing what it says. It starts to talk about a God of love and mercy and grace. There's all these videos going around on social media that talk about what God's not like. And it could be easy to get caught up in like somebody's one second theology. But the reality is, is when you put your face into this book, you realize, man, there is something in here that tells me about the depth of his love for me. But you got to dig in. You got to dig in to find it. And when you find it for yourself, your heart goes, oh God, I love you. I knew you were this good. 
I knew you were better than that person on TikTok and Instagram said. You know, I knew. It's not hard. I guarantee it's a 20-minute read before you can find that most of that's wrong. The second thing is we must cultivate our love for God through personal relationship with Him. Now that we are born again, we can love God. We love God from the heart because our heart is born again. The Spirit of God has made us alive. He breathes in our life so that we can give back to God what He's given to us. And I could say to you today, well, the way that you cultivate your relationship with God is read your Bible and pray and worship. And that's true, but I would also add to it, it has to be from the heart. That's why we constantly need him to open our hearts and reveal him to us in greater and greater ways. But I was thinking about like, if I asked somebody who's married today, if I said to you, you know, do you love your spouse? And they go, yeah. Such an easy thing to say, isn't it, Dr. Dan? Such an easy thing to say. You love your spouse? Yes, I do. And I would ask, well, what does that actually look like in your life? If we're going to use love as a verb, what does that look like? Why don't you go ahead and share with all of us here today, the congregation of God, what that looks like in your life? Not intimidating at all. Could I get the microphone, please? We're going to do that. Just ran- no, I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Randomly, we're going to go ahead and pull the audience today. Hey, how is it that you truly love your spouse? And you go, well, we're married, aren't we? I mean, uh, years ago, I said I do. I sleep in the same bed with them, and nobody, nobody else is in there. So that's, that's exclusive. Nobody else wants to be in your bed. <laughs> that should show their love for you. No, I'm just joking. That's messed up. All right. We share the same last name. <laughs> when they get mad, I forgive them. <laughs> I don't know what would come out of your mouth. I probably shouldn't ask anybody. Um, but it, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, some of you would have good answers too, to be, to be really fair. But some stuff that comes out of our mouth is not very compelling. And if single people are in the room and they really want to get married at some point, it's not a good sale. <laughs> I always thought it was funny, like um, when people are counseling those that are looking to get married, potentially, and one of the first things that comes out of their mouth is like, you know, marriage is really hard. You know, it's just, it's going to be tough, you know? It's like they're talking about your your you're scaling some mountain that is like not climbable. You know, it's like, it's really hard. You know, in some days you're going to need to phone a friend. You're going to need some help. You're going to need counseling. You're going to need a lot of books, lots of books. There are millions of books written to married people because they don't know what they're doing. I mean, there are a lot of books. Number one podcast, Christian podcast is about marriage and family. I don't know if you knew that. That proves that we need help. And so it's amazing. It's like, uh, I was I think it's funny. It's like if, if uh, I think Tim Hawkins said, if uh, car salesmen tried to sell cars the way some people sell marriage, nobody would ever be married. <laughs> you know, nobody would ever buy a car. <laughs> it's like this car is really tough. You know, sometimes it has really bad seasons, and uh, you're going to really need to read a lot of books about this. Car. I mean, just should I buy the car? You know, it just wouldn't. It's funny to me. Um, But in the spirit of cultivating our love for the Lord, let me ask you a number of evaluative questions. Instead of just saying, read your Bible, pray, and worship, those those are for sure. But these are are questions, okay? So um, number one, go back to number one. Uh, No, sorry, yeah, give me that list. Uh, Give me the list that's after number two. I made the mistake. So number one here is the Lord, the greatest passion of my life. 
Is he the most important person in my life, more important than anybody else? Number two, do I have a deep and growing affection for the Lord? Like from the heart, do I, do, is it growing in my life? If he is the first, loving God is the most important thing in my life. Can I absolutely say that my affection for God is growing? Number three, am I exclusively loyal to God with my words and actions? In other words, when I talk to other people or when I'm interacting with others and when I think about work and I think about hobbies and I think about family, am I exclusively loyal to God in the way I talk about him and all that that really means? Is that what I filter everything else through my love for God? Number four, do I enjoy spending time with the Lord through scripture, prayer, and worship? Not do, do I do it but do I enjoy it? How many of you don't just want to do it? I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy time with God. I want to love God. I want to love my time with him. If you're married and you go out on a date and you're sitting there, well, we're here, aren't we? Don't you want to enjoy being with your spouse? We have date nights. You know, they're regularly scheduled. (laughs) We're doing it, pastor. I don't know. Okay. Something's not working out here. Like, don't you want to enjoy that time? See, if you don't enjoy that time, something's off. You say, well, Ben, you're just talking about emotional love. Your emotions are connected to your being. It's not just emotions, but you're a whole person. So we're talking about your emotions and your time and your energy and all that you are, loving with all that you are. And so we want to enjoy time with God. Number five, do I do things in my life to please the Lord and increase his joy? Is this even something we think about? Sometimes we think about, I want, I want joy to come to me. Next week, we're going to focus on joy. We light the candle of joy because Jesus brings, I'm messing with your advent, because Jesus brings joy to me. But do we ever think, think about bringing joy to him? I remember years ago, a pastor talked about increasing the pleasure of God. That just sounds like a weird statement. I did not know what he meant. But he talked about living our life in a way where we want to please God and it increases his smile over our life. He loves all of us. In Christ, we stand right and perfect before him because of the blood of Jesus. But as we live life as sons and daughters, do we want to bring joy to our father? Do we want to bring him pleasure? Do I make decisions in my life that tell God I love you? Not because I have to, but I want to. I want to. We get too hung up on the religious aspects and that's what they did. I don't care what side you're on as you look at church or the way that we walk and and we analyze everybody else. I'm talking about our own heart. Do we want to love God and increase his pleasure in our life? Lord, I want to see you smile. I mean, is that heretical to say? That sounds like relationship to me. It just sounds like relationship. I think when we're too consumed about getting something from him and receiving what he brings, we don't realize that part of why he gives it to us is because without him giving it to us, we can't give it back to him. But when he gives it to us, we're supposed to share some of that with him too. He's not narcissistic. He doesn't give it and say, hey, you got to worship me because I need that. He doesn't need it. But there's something powerful in this exchange that God wants for us and our relationship with him. I don't fully understand it, but I certainly want it. Do I talk to the Lord? Do I talk about the Lord to other people? Or do I brag on God? <laughs> if you're wondering if I'm going to get to the rest of my points, the answer is no. Um, but can I, can I just, even if I close on this point, 
Do I brag on God? I was uh, working out at Planet Fitness because that's uh, the gym for me. Amen. Any gym that says no judgment on the wall is a place where I can hang. You know, it's just a, <laughs> it's like as I'm working out, I can just look at nobody judges each other. You know, we don't even try to make eye contact. It's powerful. <laughs> you almost do by accident. You go, oh, sorry. <laughs> it could be a form of judgment. It's just powerful. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but I was working out at Planet Fitness and I was on one of the machines and I started talking to this other lady that was on a machine next to me and she was, uh, she had joy coming out of her, which by the way, I go there four times a week. It's not normal. I don't see that. Most people don't want to talk to you. I try. They don't, they don't. And occasionally um, someone will stop and I'll have interaction and dialogue. Love it. Love it. Uh, enjoy doing that. Although when you don't have your glasses on, you can't tell if anybody's like a woman or a man or anything, you know, it's just like, hey, going to misgender, <laughs> like really misgender. Anyway, so, so I have complications. It's all, Matt, just, you're laughing at me, right? Amen. Just rightly, <laughs> just laugh at me. I'm not, I literally can't see very well. It's my, all right. So I'm talking to her and she has joy coming out of her and she just, you know what? She started telling me her whole story. She just started telling me her whole story. So uh, she, had a, she had a horrible marriage. She got divorced. She had to go somewhere to go away from this person because it was abusive. And she just literally like opens up, tells me her whole story. And then she just starts to kind of tear up and talk about how Jesus redeemed her. And I just looked at her and I said, ma'am, you, she, and she kind of didn't want to keep intruding. And I, I just took my earphones out, put them on the ground. You know, it's kind of when you're serious, like, hey, let's just... Let's talk. And I let her just brag on God. She just was bragging on God. What if testifying about God is just bragging on how amazing he is? And that sometimes we miss the opportunity to love God by talking about how great he is. And so testifying comes around like, oh, we get to go share, and it becomes this like religious obligation. Well, the last, I haven't shared my faith with anybody for so long, and I haven't talked about the goodness of God uh, with anybody for so long. What if we looked at it differently and said, this is one of the ways that we love God, is we talk about great God is to other people who don't know. And maybe they do know. I knew, and she didn't know I knew. I did not tell her I was a pastor or any of that. I've learned a good tactic in the world. I just let her brag on God. And you know what I felt while she was doing it? I felt the pleasure of the Lord. I thought this is a moment where somebody is practically, clearly loving the Lord. That's what I felt in my heart. It's beautiful. Do I talk to the Lord about, or do I talk to people about the Lord? Do I tell the Lord that I love him? Do you tell the Lord that you love him? Regular practice. Lord, I love you. Oh, he knows. Think about your spouse. Do we say that about them? Oh, they know. Me and my wife, it's what we do. When I, we get off the phone with each other, we say, I love you. I, I highly encourage this practice. <laughs> I love you. Saying it. Expression. Finding expression. We don't assume anything. We share it. We say it. God wants us to do, to do that. Do I talk with the Lord as much as I can? Do I worship the Lord with singing, raising my hands in honor and surrender? And I'll close with this. When I, there's a lot more we could talk about what it means to love the Lord. But the last part is, 
I do not believe, and I think from this passage, that we can truly love people rightly unless we love God supremely. I just think that our love for people will be always askew. We'll always want something back. That's why Jesus had to actually tell us, don't love people just that love you in return. I mean, is that not the most practical teaching in the world? Like, check your motivation. By the way, love your enemies. What do you, how do you do? pray for those that despitefully you? I mean, this teaching is like so simple. And you go, why did he even have to say it? He had to say it because we don't do it. And he had to put it down clearly. He had to write it out. Love people that don't just love you in return. Paul said, love doesn't seek its own return. But I will tell you, if you want to love people better, put God first. As you begin to love God, as we begin to love God, then the overflow of our love that we receive in relationship with him, it's uncontainable. You will love people more and you will love people better. It is just part of what happens when we put God first. So what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength. And what is the second commandment? It's to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this first, nobody will stop you doing this because you can't receive more from God and not give it away. It's too much. It's the overflow that comes out of your life. Would you stand? Let's pray that the Lord would increase that in our lives. As a show of hands, how many of you want to love God more? Okay, <laughs> I see every hand up in the spirit today. <laughs> Father, we thank you today. Join me. Thank you today for your love for us. And we ask you that you would increase our love for you. Show us, Jesus, the beauty of Christ, that we might behold you, that we might desire you more, that we might make real decisions to give ourselves over to you, and that we might also devote our whole lives to you. As we wake up and we enter into our day, as we go to bed at night, I pray, Lord, that we would increase in our devotion to you, not out of obligation, but out of loving relationship. I pray that that would grow in our hearts more and especially as we celebrate Advent and we think about what you've done for us, Lord. We celebrate something that has been done for us, but I pray that it would equal a response out of us to love you more. So Lord, we love you. We do. We love you. Help us to follow that through with real, tangible commitment in ways that please your heart and also bring a more real and meaningful relationship with you in our life to know what that's all about. We thank you today in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.